So I'm just going to ask you to think out loud with me for a minute. If somebody were to just ask you if you they saw you looking at a cross store, maybe you're shopping at Hobby Lobby and you're looking at that little section they got with crosses everywhere. Um, if somebody just stopped and asked you, what does the what does that cross mean to you? What does the cross mean to you? We have a whole wall full of cross back here, right? Everybody, our church families, everybody's part of our church family uh, brings a cross, and we put it on that wall. Pretty proud of that wall, by the way. Love those crosses, and uh, think about the families that donate them every time I'm there. Um, but what what does it mean? I heard Kathy say, "Yeah, forgiveness, forgiveness of all of our sins, my past sins, my present sins, and my future sins." And that's amazing truth. Romans five nineteen. That's fantastic. What else does it mean to you? What what do you think of? What would you tell somebody if they just ask you? What does the cross mean? Victory, yeah, victory. Glorious redemption. Sounds like somebody's writing a song. Helen <laughs> likes to write songs. Glorious redemption. That's really good. It's really good. Somebody said, "Love." Just yeah, the biggest love there is. That's agape in the New Testament. It's the divine love of God. What else does it mean to you? Anybody else? What's a trigger in your head? How would you explain it to somebody? Sacrifice. That's right. That's right. It's the sacrifice he paid for us. He's our sacrificial lamb. He really is. That's good. That's good. <laughs> everything. Well, that's great. It does mean everything. It is your whole future sits on that. And it is the greatest moment in history. Um, I've I've been teaching for 38 years now as a minister, uh, maybe more if you count some youth days here when I was a youth in the youth, teaching the youth and all that kind of stuff. It never gets old to me. Matter of fact, it it, it never fails to impress me, deep in me, what the cross really is. And I don't think any true Christ follower, we've been talking about real followers the last few months, um, not people that say it, not people that just attend services, but I mean people that really are following Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior, the Redeemer, the sacrificial Lamb. If we're truly following Him, I don't think we're ever supposed to get far away from the cross, ever. I think it's supposed to stay fresh in our minds, and we're supposed to continually be drawn to it, and we're supposed to look at it, um, think about it, dwell on it, honor him for it. Paul says, my life verse is Galatians 6, 14. And Paul says in Galatians 6, uh, in verse 14, he says, God forbid that I would boast. God forbid that I would boast, save in the death of Christ my Lord. He's like, this is the only thing worth boasting in. Everything I have is because of the cross. And uh, so I'm just going to reflect with you for a little bit this morning, uh, kind of a different way for me to to. Uh, share with you, but I want you to hear some things that the cross means to me personally. Um, I've, I've spent years helping groups discover the cross, and we've had, I don't know how many cross services we've done. I know one year at Easter, we did a huge one here where we had a big cross, and uh, people came after a bunch of singing and, and uh, teaching. They came and nailed red ribbons on a cross, and uh, we dimmed the lights and the the guys carried the cross out, and while we were singing the last song about his resurrection on Easter, um, the cross came back with white ribbons, and everybody had written their name on the ribbon. When they got the ribbon back, it still had their name on it in white, and uh, we did that at camp a few years back. I've done it a couple times at camp, I think, and uh, 
I'll never forget one one kid that still goes there. She's an adult now, goes to camp. And uh, she's convinced that it's the exact same ribbon. We were like, no, we just took yours off and wrote your name, kind of like you wrote it on yours. No, it's exactly my handwriting. God did a miracle. <laughs> so, like, no, that was just us with hammers and nails. But it's a beautiful picture, and it's life-changing to nail a nail in a cross while you're thinking about how Jesus died to pay for your sin and to realize he get what, what happened when that, when that happened is he gave you back his righteousness. You now have his righteousness. And so I love teaching on the cross, and I've spent years sharing about it. Um, and so I just want to give you four little truths this morning. Really not that brilliant, but they're very important. Um, I hope you take notes of them or think of them and write them down. The cross means, first of all to me, that I don't have to prove myself to anyone in order to be loved. I don't have to add up or fit in or meet expectations. Um, I don't have to look to others to, to feel like I'm loved. And it gives me the freedom to love anybody, even my enemies. That's the whole point of it, by the way. But I, I, the Lord himself died for me so that I don't have to prove anything. That, that's crystal clear in how we're saved. We're saved by grace. Ephesians 2, uh, 8 through 10 says, we're, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. You didn't have to prove yourself to Christ to get saved and loved. For him to love you that deeply, you didn't have to prove anything to him. You're free from trying to prove yourself. And and I kind of grew up as an approval addict um, in my, uh, just the way my life worked growing up. And I, I know there's all this psychology and stuff that goes with it, but my formative years, as they would call it, um, I was in a Christian school from kindergarten, really from back before they had K-4, I was put in kindergarten at four. So, so from K-4 all the way through sixth grade, I went to this really strict, good Christian school. Met Jesus there. Um, Myrna Locke, my second grade teacher and my spiritual mother, taught me how to invite Jesus into my heart. So I love that school. I love that time there. But they had an incredible amount of rules um, about what Christians do and don't do. And as a kid, we assumed the rule book was the Christian rule book. It's, you know, Christians don't wear these kind of clothes and they don't, Christian guys wear short hair and, you know, Christian girls wear long dresses and, and all that kind of stuff, because that was the rules. And if you broke the rules, you got in trouble or kicked out of the Christian school. So you're no longer a Christian kind of things, how it translated in your little head. And so, but I, I grew up following the rules really well at that school. I didn't like being in trouble, unlike my brother. And, uh, and uh, both of my brothers, by the way, were kicked out of several schools. Um, just saying, uh, but I didn't, I didn't like that whole energy that went with that and the whole negative that happened at home because of it. And so I, I learned to, uh, get the approval of those that put out the rules and, and laid that down. And I followed, I followed the rules, uh, got pretty good at it, honestly, just proudly telling you, <laughs> um, got really good at following the rules and was just one of those good kids. You know, I was a kid that wasn't a lot of trouble and uh, kind of low maintenance in a classroom and that kind of deal. Got in one fight my whole life in, in the elementary school, and my dad about killed me over that, so we never did that again. And uh, but, but there was just this early childhood for me was obeying the rules, meant the leadership, the authorities loved you a little differently than everybody else. That's how it worked for me. And, and my dad, being a World War II veteran and a 
a very rough, tough man. Um, he kind of loved me that way. When I was really good, he loved me by not bringing judgment to me or wrath, we called it at our house. Um, when I was bad, it didn't go that well. So I just stayed in the, I'm going to do what dad says. I'm going to follow the rules. And that was a pattern for me. Well, my parents took me out of the wonderful, loving Christian school in the sixth grade and put me in university military school back when I was still in military school. And they had a rule book. Their rule book wasn't this thick. It was this thick. And uh, it was just, it included shining shoes and keeping your brass clean and your locker could be inspected. And all the books had to be exactly lined up right from tallest to shortest and, and binders out and the books had to be in good condition. I mean, you had incredible amount of stuff you had to keep up with there discipline wise. And it was a healthy thing for me as a kid to, from seven through 12 to have to be disciplined like that. Didn't like it at all at first, by the way, hated every single second of it at first. But over time, it clicked with me that I've got this bunch of authority people and they really like it when you're good, when you obey the rule book, you get their approval. And then that school, they actually give you these little things you can wear on your chest. They were pretty, pretty cool. You can just get a whole row. You can just build rows of them. And I used to love getting those and building rows and loved getting the attention that that brought when we were in formations and stuff. And we could wear, our, you know, that's for me from being obedient. That's what that was. I was obedient. I didn't run my mouth like y'all did. So I have one of those kind of things. So it was, it, but I was in the same system really of, seeking the approval of leadership by my behavior. Um, I left there, uh, graduated there, spent a few months at the University of South Alabama in an engineering program that was not of God. And uh, God called me from this very altar. God called me into full-time ministry and the pastor, David Jones, love him with all my heart and soul. Um, but David Jones, the founding pastor of this church, helped me get to Bible college in Birmingham and they handed me a rule book. All these young guys, freshmen in that freshman class, were freaking out because they'd been in public schools or whatever they'd been in. And they're like, what do you mean we got to cut our hair? What do you mean we got to dress with a tie every day? And I'm just flipping through it going, oh, that's, I've been doing this all my life. And it was really easy for me at Southeastern to follow the rules. My freshman year, my wife was a year ahead of me because she's older and smarter, just a little bit older but a lot smarter. And, uh, but she was a year ahead of me and she was a resident assistant at that time, an RA. And I mean, she's in charge of the parts of the dorm. And in our, in our freshman dorm where I was, we had a problem with an RA that had to leave school um, over some not following rule things. And it left a gap in there. And freshmen aren't allowed to be RAs unless they're really good freshmen. So me with all my obedience medals and I've been real good for my whole first semester there. They they invite me to a, a, a retreat with the RA so I can learn how to be a resident assistant as a freshman at my Bible college so I can help keep everybody in the rules because I'm really good at keeping rules. And and it worked fine other than the fact that I got the flu at that stupid retreat and nearly died. But other than that, I was really having one of those moments where it's sort of like all my training as a child fit right into my Bible college, which had tons of rules, and I just flowed right through it. And I got lots of approval, lots of approval. You know, professors and leaders in different areas were always complimenting, and it felt good. It felt good. And I began to believe, here's my problem, I began to believe that 
I have to obey to get approval or love. And it began to translate as I'm going through four years of Bible college and, and pouring theology into me. I mean, tons of reading and theology and tons and tons and tons of Greek and the languages and the, the classes were taken on doctrine and the classes were taken on, on count. All that stuff were just pouring into us. And I began to mesh my training with my faith life. I was truly saved, but I got to tell you, I really began to believe that God only really loves me when I'm worthy of the medal, when I'm worthy of a, an award, when I'm doing what he asks. And then I took a little youth group, Vestavia Alliance, uh, Christian and Missionary Alliance Church in Birmingham. It was the oldest uh, Alliance Church in Alabama for a long time. Vestavia Alliance Church. I took a little youth group there, 35 bucks a year. And uh, a month, a year, felt like that, 35 bucks a month. And I was their youth pastor. And I didn't know what, I was like, well, I don't know what I'm going to teach. I'll just, let's just do the gospel of John. There's a good idea. John's fun. Let's do John. And I began to teach through the book of John, studying it on my own and pouring it into these students. And guess what I figured out? I don't have to prove myself to anybody, especially God. He loves me just like I am. While I'm still a sinner, he loves me. When I'm in my sin, he comes in my sin and pulls me out of my sin. He, he rescues me from my own sin. He doesn't need me to be obedient. He wants me to be obedient because it's better for me. And it's good for me. But I don't have to be obedient to be loved. His love is unconditional. Does that make sense? And I just had to learn, I don't have to fit in with anybody. I don't have to look good for these leaders or these groups. I don't have to meet some expectation of my bosses. If everything goes all wrong in all of that, I'm still very, very loved by the one who matters, by Jesus Christ himself. I'm justified by his works. If you want to add another verse to this, you could add in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and then Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. And in Romans 5 verse 1, there's this, Beautiful passage where it says, Therefore, having been justified, I have peace with God. Well, how was I justified? Because I did a lot of good things to be justified. Got my earn, earned my medals, got my banners, got my, you know, got my trophies. Nope. Jesus Christ went to the cross, paid for all of my sins, and gave me his sinlessness in my place. That's what it means to be justified, to trade his sinlessness for my sins. He took all of my sins on him, gave me his sinlessness. The Greek word in Romans 5, 5 1 means traded ledgers. Therefore, having traded ledgers, I stand before God clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I don't get that. I believe it, by the way. I just don't get it. God sees me like Jesus, Right? Now, my wife can tell you I am not like Jesus. She's probably the one that can tell you the most. I am not like Jesus. Some of y'all know I am not like Jesus. But that's how God sees me with his righteousness on me. If you've trusted Christ your Savior, just raise your hand. If you've trusted him as your Savior, raise your hand. That's how he sees you. That's how he sees He's looking down on you right now going, he, she looks just like Jesus. She looks like my son Jesus. He looks just like Jesus. 
Man, that gives me chill bumps when I think about that. I don't know how God does that other than just the, the magnificent grace that he's willing to say, Jesus took it all. And I never have to judge it again. So the cross means I don't have to prove myself. Secondly, the cross means I am safe, forever safe with him. Jesus says he will never leave us nor forsake us. When we trust in him, he will never leave us nor forsake us. That's Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Jesus says in, in John chapter 10, Jesus says, I give eternal life to them. They shall never perish. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. Verse 29, he goes on and says, and my father has me in his hands and nobody can get us out of those hands. You're never going to get lost from God or Jesus, ever, ever. There's a verse in Colossians 3 and verse 3 where it says we are hidden in God. Think about this. We're hidden in God in Christ. It's like a double locked vault chamber. God and Christ have hidden us to protect us, to protect our eternal souls. You cannot be any safer than to have Christ as your Savior and Lord. You cannot be any safer. Our daughter lives in some apartments down here off Airport Boulevard, and some friends of Josh's had their, they live in the same apartment complex, did live in the same apartment complex, and that couple had just had a baby, six weeks old, and uh, Audrey, and uh, and the, the somebody, while mom and baby were at home, kicked in the back sliding door while she's there, and broke in to steal things and had a weapon. And she very wisely grabbed her baby and kind of ran out, and which was great, um, and and fled. So she was safe, but it was very pain, you know. So we were immediately talking to our daughter, going, "Hey, that alarm system we've been talking about—that's going to happen now. <laughs> I don't want you to come home to somebody in your apartment because you come in your front door. That back door is could have been open and somebody in there. You don't check your back door before you go in your front door." Right, so it was very important to us that she get a security system. You know, security is important to us. Just that kind of security. You know what kind of security Jesus gives? Permanent, eternal, eternal security. Nothing can happen to you. We're going to study this the next couple of weeks. We're going to teach a series called "Go Outside." Go outside, and uh, the only and it's going to be to deal with hurts and pains and depression and fears and anxieties and worries, things that overwhelm us, especially in these February months when it's still cloudy and yucky and all that. And, and uh, it's just a good chance to look and say the only way to get help when your brain is struggling with some of that, when your thoughts are struggling, you have to go outside. You can physically go outside, but you really have to go outside your mind to the Word of God, to the truth of God, and get some help. And one of the things we're going to look at is that in 1 Corinthians, it says he filters every single thing that ever comes to us. You know that your whole life is Father filtered by God the Father. He filters it, filters it for you. We're going to study that next week. So, and, and just so you know, Paul writes these, this phrase when he's in prison. We studied Philippians for all of last year. When he's in prison with an uncertain future, uh, chained to a guard for two plus years. Any minute now, somebody can come down the hall and knock on the door and say, you know, Paul, sorry, today we got the paperwork and you're going to have your head cut off in a few hours. You know, today's your day. That's that's how his life is hanging by a thread for years in prison. And he writes all about joy in Philippians. He writes all about joy. And then he says this, 
Philippians 1, uh, verse 19, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. It's like, come on, man, just if you want to come tell me my head's taken off, that's great news because I'm express lane to God now. To live is Christ, to die is gain. I actually see him. If, we, if you take my life, you're not going to change me. I'm safe with him. See what Paul's saying? So just recognize the cross means you're forever safe and your security, if you'll find it in him, your security is awesome. The cross also means that I'm significant to the most significant one in the universe. Jesus Christ is the most significant one in all the universe. He's the one who paid for our sins. He's the one who loves us unconditionally. He's the one who sacrificed everything to come and be with us. And John 15 verse 13 says, Greater love has no man than to lay down his life for a friend. And Jesus calls us in that passage, by the way, his friends. That's why I love when we sing a, several of our songs have that little phraseology. And one of them today had that little phrase that we are his friend. He has made us his friend. I'm a friend with Jesus and I am significant to him. I, there's, a, there's a series of books that Robert S. McGee wrote a while back called Search for Significance. Highly recommend you read them. They're older now, probably got some updated versions of them. There's a really good book to find your significance in Christ, not in yourself. We love to find significance in how we behave. We love to find significance in, like, like I, I was finding for years, my significance in my ability to obey. And I was an approval. I wanted approval from people above me. And that made me significant because I could get approval, right? That wasn't a healthy significance, by the way, because I can't always obey. And in the dark of my own room as a teenager and as a college student, and especially as a young uh, husband, I realized I can't always obey. I don't have, I don't have a way to be that good all the time. But I don't have to now because he has paid for that and I'm significant to him no matter what. Jesus loves to take a ton of things all through the Bible. There's these stories of things that seem so insignificant and they become so significant. Moses had this stick, a pole, shepherd's staff in his hand when he met and talked with God. And what did God do with it? Throw it down. It became a snake. Pick it up. Not a snake anymore, it's a pole. I mean, all kinds of little crazy things that happen with it. But what does it become eventually? When they're fleeing the land, God says, hold that pole, hold that stick that you thought was pretty insignificant, hold it out over the Red Sea for a moment. And phew, Red Sea parts. And, and you go, well, it's just a stick, right? The, guy, the, the servants and the disciples are gathered up with Jesus at a wedding in John chapter 2. And off to the side, there's a bunch of water pots. There's a bunch of water pots, just water pots for washing. You know what they became? The solution to a huge problem at a wedding. We ran out of wine. We need about 3,000 cups of wine. Well, guess what? Jesus says, go fill those up with water and we'll have them. Those were very insignificant to this problem, except in Jesus' mind. He knows how to take insignificant things and turn them into significant, like the adulterous woman at the well. Right? She's an insignificant person. But Jesus made her significant. The Gadarean demoniac is a very insignificant guy. He doesn't even have an identity when Jesus meets him. He's identified by the demons that live in him until all of a sudden Jesus impacts his life, casts the demons out, and now he's a witness, it says, to the ten towns around him. 
to the ten towns around him, he becomes a witness. Even though he was insignificant. You know what Jesus loves to do with insignificant people? Make them significant. Because he's the most significant one and he can do that. So the cross means I'm significant. God commended his love toward us in that while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. He made me significant. Romans 5 verse 8. And then lastly this morning, I just want you to hear the cross means shame and guilt are optional every day. Shame and guilt are optional. You get to choose whether you feel shame or guilt. They're not in, they're not supposed to be in the life of a true Christ follower if the cross means the cross for you. If the cross really is important to you and, and the cross really has meaning, then you get to choose whether you feel shame or guilt over something you've done. Um, because the Bible says when he died on the cross, he paid for all of my sins. All, 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 all. So if I feel shame and guilt, I'm going back and picking something out of that all even if it's something I did today and I feel guilty about it, even if it's something in the future and I feel guilty or shame about all that, that's me picking things out of my past and handing them to God and saying, see God, this is my this is where I'm struggling right here. He's going, I don't see it. God's going, I don't see any. I see you as Jesus. We paid for all that. Why are you digging it back up out of the garbage? Why do you go back into all that and dig it back up and, and pour it on yourself? I watch people all the time beat themselves up over their past sins, past failures, and some of them are huge. I get it. I watch them beat themselves up and never live in the freedom that the cross gives. And I'm just telling you, the cross means shame and guilt are optional every single day. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Listen to the words. There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. How much condemnation? Zero. So if you're feeling condemned or if your self-talk is condemning, who's doing the talking? God? No. He says no condemnation. If your self-talk has con condemning thoughts and condemnation all woven up into it, your self-talk is coming from the enemy, Satan, or from you echoing the enemy's talking to you before. By the way, after the enemy wears you down on a while, he can back away. You don't have to be your, you don't need him to help you self beat, beat yourself up. You don't need him to help you do that. He does it all by his, you'll do it all by yourself if you're not, if you're trained in it to condemn yourself. But you're actually stepping outside the boundaries of God's himself's guidelines. He says there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So we can live completely free of condemnation. Does it mean we don't need to uh, feel remorse for our sin? No, the Bible says, please feel remorse for your sin and change it. But do not feel shame and guilt. Shame and guilt damage a person. Remorse changes a person. That's how the Bible takes care of it. And that's how Jesus asked us to take care of it. He says, just change. Tells the adulterous woman caught in the very act of adultery, thrown at his feet in the temple. My favorite story in John chapter 8 in all the Bible throws her at his feet, and Jesus says, hey, who's condemning you? She goes, nobody. 
Who's the one person that could condemn her that day? Jesus. And he chose to take her sins to the cross so he can set her free. And he says, go and sin no more. No guilt, no shame. Just just walk in a different path now. Have, Have repentance as part of your lifestyle so you're changing and you don't have to live in shame and guilt. Nobody in this room has to live in shame and guilt. Amen? For this until the Lord comes. And he's coming, by the way. So it's it's both. Let's look at the cross, which we spent a good time doing this morning. I hope your heart's sensitive about how good God is to you at the cross of Calvary and what Christ took when he took all those beatings and stripes and when the nails went through his hands, what all that means. But ultimately, ultimately, the cross itself means we get to live in heaven with him. We can look forward to that. Amen.